This time on the Rule Right Radio podcast with New York Mike. The Supreme Court will decide if a president has the authority in a crisis situation to mandate our behavior. You know, what can a U.S. president or the citizens to do versus a dictatorship? At least that's what it seems to me. We're talking about mask mandates and vaccine mandates. And we're talking about Biden trying to use the current laws to get businesses with over 100 employees to enforce a mask mandate under the current laws. How does the president get the authority to order everyone to wear a mask? Where does that come from? How does the president get the power to see that every citizen is vaccinated? When is he a dictator? When does he cross the line? He wears black denim trousers and motorcycle boots and a black leather jacket with his name on the back. He does a patriotic podcast called Roll Right Radio. His name is New York Mike and welcome to the show. This is Roll Right Radio. I'm New York Mike. Hi, it's Roll Right Radio, and I am New York Mike. Hey, we're going to be talking about a few things today. Let's talk about J6. Yeah, January 6th. We talked about it the other day. It was uh, the anniversary, and I thought it was appropriate. I thought what the president and vice president, the whole Democratic Party said, was totally inappropriate. I got a comment because... And we're going to talk about a few other things. I'm not going to dominate this whole hour with January 6th. We're going to talk about rolling to remember. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the Supreme Court looking at the mandates. But a few of the added thoughts have come to mind because we didn't mention Ashley Babbitt, the only person actually killed in the melee, shot by a cop who we haven't learned anything about. She was unarmed. It doesn't seem that he was being threatened, but we don't know because investigation is being kept secret. Although the officer was found not guilty of wrongdoing, but there's a lot to be unpacked here. And more so, after the way the Democrats compared January 6th to Pearl Harbor to 9-11, and it's hard to believe they would do that. Then they've been careful to exclude the video footage that would show it was a protest or a rally that got out of hand or was set up by ill preparations, no preparations or worse, or by the FBI or other government agencies or shills pushing the agenda. There's also evidence, by the way, I was there, Antifa was there, let me tell you. We saw them, and I can go into details, but they already have in past podcasts. So I'll just tell you, there was plenty of Antifa players on the scene, busloads of them. So again, I was there. I'm a witness to it. Don't call me a liar. Antifa was there to exploit the naive Trump supporters and, and get them to do stupid and illegal things. We see them all over TV and every place else. Directing protesters to break into the Capitol, breach the Capitol, egging them on very loudly and visibly 
they haven't found him to charge him. And this January 6th commission is clearly focused solely on blaming Trump supporters, Republicans, and excluding any evidence not supporting those conclusions. That's just the way it's going. They have an agenda. It seems like their agenda is say, do anything to focus everything about January 6th on how bad it was compared to Pearl Harbor and 9-11. I listened to Biden's speech. It was like, are you kidding me? I can't believe a president was, was saying this even in this matter. But I think he even compared it to the Civil War. Or did he say, oh, it's the worst, the worst thing that happened in America since the Civil War? Is this, what's wrong with these people? But clearly, they seem to be fixated, as far as I'm concerned, on doing anything that would keep Donald Trump from running for the presidency again. This is 2022. You've got at least two years to go. You got the, the midterm elections coming up, and they're doing everything they can to make sure that Donald Trump is the candidate in 2024. Are they that scared of him? They're excluding any evidence that doesn't support those conclusions. They're just excluding it. And there's hours, maybe thousands of hours of footage showing there was no arms. And like I said before, I don't even think there was a Swiss knife in the place. This is what they're doing. And meanwhile, they act like Ashley Babbitt never existed. They don't talk about it, a casualty, what is the sad casualty of this. Everybody should be aware and, or everybody should feel badly that this had nothing. It's like she didn't exist. And what if, and I, again, I said this before, I'm going to say it again. What if Ashley Babbitt was black? And, and or the shooter was white. Yeah, you know, this, again, like I said, there is a, a lot to unpack about what happened on January 6th, mostly because the Democrats seem to want to make this into something that's this really big insurrection, takeover of America, democracy is threatened. Are you kidding me? It's, I don't want to say it's a joke. It was wrong to do it. It was wrong that anybody breached the Capitol. It was certainly wrong that they went in there and destroyed property and made a mockery of, you know what, wait, I take that back. Every citizen has a right to go into the Capitol and make a mockery of Congress. Yeah, that's all right. That's our house. But don't go in there and break windows and destroy things and do that kind of stuff. It's not right. But then let's not make this into this insurrection. It seems that if they could put blame on Donald Trump, and, and that's what they did. I drove 3,000 miles across the country. Donald Trump didn't tell me to do that. I did that way before his speech. I traveled 3,000 miles to be there on January 6th because I did not believe that this election should have been certified. I thought there's every chance to investigate what I saw was a stolen election. And by the way, I still do. Yeah, I, I heard the different Republican senators saying what they're saying and all that. Fine. And I, I believe I get why they're saying it. 
They're saying it because there's so many Republicans, and I hear them, I, I find it hard to believe, but I see it. So many Republicans are saying, why vote? If it's going to be fixed anyway, why vote? And I, I heard Senator Johnson talk about that. Yeah, they said it. They said they're concerned that if Republicans think that the Democrats are going to steal the election and they think they're going to do it again, why bother voting if the election is just going to be stolen? That's not a really smart attitude. I'm so naive. I just assumed as I'm ranting and raving on my podcast for the last year that what we're talking about is getting out there and vote, double down, make sure your friends vote, let's get out there. And I thought everybody had the same mindset. But clearly I'm wrong. And there are plenty out there who are so discouraged and beaten by this loss that, again, in so many of us, in so many of our opinions, that this election was stolen. That doesn't, that gives me more incentive, not just to vote, but to get everybody else to vote. It gives me more incentive to be active, to walk precincts or do whatever else it takes to get the candidates elected. I'm working with my buddy Rich. We're working on a PAC, a super PAC, raising money for Republican candidates. We're stepping up. That's right. And I just felt like everybody else is doing the same thing. They're stepping up. But it, it seems like there's an awful lot of people getting discouraged. Don't let them win. Don't be the force multiplier. If they beat us on the election because they cheated or rigged it or whatever, which I firmly believe, and i got to keep saying that, I'm entitled to firmly believe it, and I'm not a stupid person. So don't tell me that I'm not entitled to say that. Oh, by saying that, I'm saying something illegal or for which I should be canceled. No. I just believe it. But that just gives me the incentive, and I want everybody out there to make sure that everybody they know, you could believe the election was stolen, and that should be all the incentive you need to double down and make sure that we do everything we can to get our candidates elected. It's a big deal. So we're going to continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going away with this. We're going to continue to stay on top of this as things develop. Yeah, absolutely. To be sure, we're going, <laughs> we're going to stay with this story. But today, there's the biggest, well, is it bigger? I don't know what's, everything's so big today. But what's really big, <laughs> which is, I don't know which is big. The Supreme Court will decide if a president has the authority in a crisis situation to mandate our behavior. You know, what can a U.S. president order citizens to do versus a dictatorship? At least that's what it seems to me. We're talking about mask mandates and vaccine mandates. And we're talking about Biden trying to use the current laws to get businesses with over 100 employees to enforce a mask mandate under the current laws. I don't know how does a president get the authority to order everyone to wear a mask? Where does that come from? How does a president get the power to see that every citizen 
is vaccinated? When is he a dictator? When does he cross the line? I mean, the arguments made by the justices so far, they're an insult to freedom. It's not whether you opine that the order is beneficial, but whether it's legal. Okay, is it beneficial if everybody gets vaccinated? I think so. I, I, it's fair to say that. But do you want a president that has that kind of power? I know there's other things that are less popular. For instance, national helmet laws. You still can't dictate a national helmet law for motorcyclists. Thank God. Yeah, so 19 states have helmet laws for adults. 31 don't. Yeah, you didn't know that, right? So can the federal government come? No. The states have that power. What are we doing by taking away the power of the states? Why? Because all of a sudden, Biden thinks it's uh, this crisis, an emergency. What about seatbelt laws? There's no national seatbelt laws. There can't be. It's each state. That's right. And they've done what they could to, quote, unquote, induce, <laughs> yeah, states to have seatbelt laws and DWI laws of whatever, 0 0.08 and different things that the federal government would like. But they have to do things to try to get the states to do it. The president can't mandate these laws. It's just not done that way. And that's just interestingly, it's also the argument against Roe v. Wade, that the federal government isn't entitled to make that decision. It's interesting. The Supreme Court is looking at that Mississippi abortion law, and I think they're also looking at one from Texas. I know they're looking at one from Mississippi about how many weeks the government can say that, how many weeks after a certain amount of time. I think Mississippi said after 15 weeks, you can't have you know, an abortion unless there are certain conditions, incest, rape, the life of the mother, etc. I remember going through that, listening carefully, by the way, to the Supreme Court arguments. But this isn't about that. It's interesting that now that I'm thinking about it and talking about it, I see that there's some similarities because the federal government cannot cannot put out helmet laws for adults, seatbelt laws for everybody in the country. Because that would lead to laws that tell you that you have to take vitamins. You know, the federal government can't tell you not a lot of smoke. So limiting how much an individual can be overweight, that would be a really good thing. That's right. And we definitely, in this country, we should acknowledge we have a problem. We've had one for a long time. It's not going away. I remember me and Robert Patrick, we, we got off the freeway for a cup of coffee in Ohio, and we're sitting in a rest area in Ohio, and we're sitting there drinking our, drinking our Starbucks, sitting back, and all these people are coming in. It must have been a Sunday afternoon or something. It's hot. It's summertime. It's August in Ohio in the middle of the afternoon, and there are all these shirtless People from age 12, 13, up to their 20s and 30s. And so many of them 
shirtless. We're looking at each other going, our country's in bad shape. <laughs> we, were, we were talking about, I don't think we were laughing too much either. It was like, kidding me? Look at this. <laughs> so, you know, what if the government came in and said, yeah, we have a serious problem. How many people are dying because of that? How much more heart disease is there? How much more maybe diabetes is caused by that? Certainly the deaths by COVID are exacerbated by the fact that so many people are obese. Should the government come in and make, well, I, I don't think so. I don't think a president can say that. I don't think anybody can say that. But you're opening the door for that kind of thing. The question isn't personal safety or safety from health issues. It's being safe from an overzealous, aggressive government trying to control our personal behavior when we're acting legally, when we're not hurting anyone else. We have the right as Americans to make these individual choices. When, when these women for years and years, pro-choice, meant that they have the right to abort a baby at any time during their pregnancy, even after they give birth. It's called late-term abortion. And they've been making that argument. And they've been winning elections with that argument. When I was going to the capital of California in Sacramento and making the argument about helmet laws, I used to call them pro-choice from the waist down. But if you think about it, I want to have the choice of what I put in my body. Should I not want that vaccine because I think? I don't have to have religious reasons because I think it's going to cause blood clots or I think it's going to cause some heart issues because I've seen that out there. And if that's my opinion and my concern, I've got the right to say it's my body, my choice. Now, the other side, generally speaking, the people who are, quote unquote, calling an abortion a choice, they're telling me and you and the country that they can make the choice of aborting a pregnancy. Now, the other half of the country, my half, says that is terminating a life. It's killing a human at whatever stage. And there's a heartbeat after what, 12 weeks, 15 weeks, at some point. And is there an argument about whether that life force can feel pain? Yeah. So as long as there's that argument, how can you say my body, my choice about abortion? Now, if you are going to continue to say that, and at the same time, I'll say the government can mandate that I take a vaccine, which, by the way, full disclosure, I have taken the vaccine. But not because the government mandated it. Matter of fact, if the government mandated it and I didn't want it, I wouldn't have taken it. If I had thought anything about uh-oh, the debit's going to outweigh the credits on this baby, I wouldn't have taken it. So I think that we have to really look at this Supreme Court moment, this SCOTUS moment, yeah, the Supreme Court of the United States, and start examining what we think of freedom. What is this country all about?
because this is the essence. A big part of the answer is when will you, the individual citizen, push back? What's the benchmark for when the government can mandate or force you to behave? Wear a mask. Now, by the way, it's been absolutely proven after almost two years that these masks don't work. So now they're going to also force you to buy a certain mask, you know, an N95 or whatever they call it. Yeah, it's up to us. A big part of the answer is when will you, me, the individual citizens, push back? That's the question that should be before, not just the court. It's not the court's decision. Yeah, they have a decision to make. But at the end of the day, we're the citizens. We definitely play a big role, okay, which is how we got to this SCOTUS moment. Mask mandates, fax mandates. It finally got the citizens to say enough. It did. It took all this time. It finally got the citizens to say enough. And a couple of attorney generals from around the country to get behind it. Because without us saying, hey, enough's enough. I'm not doing this. Without those Marines and those sailors who said, okay, kick me out. Without those nurses and doctors. Without all the people in the healthcare industry. Without all the people saying, enough is enough. I'm not going to take this anymore. We would not have gotten in front of the Supreme Court. It took the citizens to say enough and loud enough to get the courts to hear it. It's a big deal, and we should be pleased with ourselves as Americans that we got here. Now we'll see if the court values our freedom more than the government's authority slash power, okay? And if it does, what do we do next? These are the times that try men's souls. And, and that's a good thing. Our destiny is in our own hands, folks. What can be more excited or more inspiring than that? We are making America great. Fighting. Fighting for those God-given rights. And if the court rules in a way that doesn't clearly support our freedom, we'll just double down and keep fighting. Oh, yeah. We'll stay on top of it. For sure, we will. Yeah, Roll Right Radio is going to stay on top of this. And, and there were some pretty stupid comments made. I know it was Justice Kagan and Sotomayor. Some of the things that, I think it was Sotomayor. She gave out some ridiculous numbers, number one, that weren't true. And she also made some other comments. But I'm going to write down some of the things that she said. The next time we get to the podcast, if this situation is lingering, now it shouldn't be. They should come back with their answer on Monday, Tuesday the latest. Some people say it'll take a week or so. I don't see why. It's pretty plain and simple, cut and dry. You either understand that 
you, the Supreme Court doesn't make decision that this is how you act to reduce the COVID. They make a decision. This is a legal way to act. And the president either has or doesn't have the power to mandate, to force you to do things. And those things include mask mandate and vax mandates. And the Supreme Court either understands that or not. So the other thing that I think is really important to talk about today is rolling to remember. You know, this Memorial Day in D.C., it's the ride that, and everybody knows this, I know you know this, but bear with me because this is really important. And this is not the last time we're going to talk about this. This is going to sort of be a theme for at least a part of Roll Right Radio. And I think it's important, and I, I hope you'll not just bear with me, but help us promote this motorcycle ride that demonstrates for POWs and MIAs left behind in past wars and to support the troops in reducing suicide. So we've been riding to D.C. on Memorial Day since 1983. That was the first Memorial Day since the Vietnam Veterans War was dedicated. We brought others into an issue that many denied at that time. You know, 1983, a lot of people denied that there were even POWs in this, you know, quote-unquote, unpopular war. If you don't remember that, maybe a lot of people are listening weren't even around then. But, you know, the war was unpopular. Our government turned their back. We won the war. Let's be clear. If you don't know that, everybody said, oh, we lost the war. No, we didn't lose the war in Vietnam. We won the war in Vietnam. We didn't lose a gunfight, okay? That was what we did. The politicians back here, the draft dodgers, the hippies, all those people that just whatever, they lost the war here. And so when we started bringing to their attention, you left that, you know, in 1975, you left and you left Americans, you left POWs there. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. And the first chance we had to rally for our own cause was when the Vietnam Veterans Wall, the Memorial Wall in Washington was built. And that's why I love and revere Jan Scruggs, the force behind that wall, the man that led the charge and built that memorial wall that changed our lives. So when that was built in 83, we went down there because, hey, it was 59,000 plus names of my fellow soldiers who died on the battlefield I fought on and were disrespected and on and on and on. And then that was 83 and then 84 and 85. And each year, the motorcycle riders that I met going down to Washington on Memorial Day, it grew. Now, the first year was maybe a couple of hundred. Second year was, I don't know if it was a thousand. And then it grew. By 1987, there were several thousands. And Audie Muller and a few other guys got together and said, hey, let's make this a organized endeavor to bring attention to the POW and MIA issues and call this rolling thunder. And that's what they did. And from that, it's our persistence that made this issue what it is today. Today, the POW MIA, that black flag is flown all over. People see it and recognize that the issue 
is an issue that's important. It also made our mantra, leave no American behind. It created that mantra, something that became a part of the American warrior's creed, leave no American behind. And at the close of the war in Afghanistan, we abandoned thousands of allies and Americans. We don't even know what the real number is. And we did it with our eyes wide open. And we, we don't even know the real account. We don't even have a real accounting. We know nothing. This administration knows nothing. They give us numbers. Oh, it's over 100. Oh, it's under 100. Oh, it's 450. Oh, and maybe there's 60,000 Afghans who worked with us and helped us. It's just sad that this happened. Many veterans who are now private citizens got together to get lots of our people out while our government deferred to the Taliban. That's right. They went to the enemy and they told us, oh, the Taliban is going to help get all the Americans out. This is an outrage. And the media, they haven't pursued it at all. You don't hear anything. August 31st was the deadline. So August 31st, September, October, November, December. It's four and a half months. It's like it's swept under the rug. Oh, it's going to go away. But there are ordinary citizens that have gone back and worked. They have this Project Pineapple, which became a project because they had to have a password. And they would tell the Americans or the friendly Afghans who were helping us to get to the gate, to get on the plane. And they had to know that the person they were talking to at that gate was a friendly. And so they used the password pineapple. So it became Project Pineapple. The American government hasn't done anything, but they've relied on the Taliban. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just, it, it's an outrage. It's an outrage, and we need to bring it to their attention. And the lives to thousands of Americans and allies are at stake. With the world focused, and the world is focused. Let me tell you something. On Memorial Day, you got to remember, we had over a million bikes. Over a million bikes on Memorial Day in 2018. Now, for all those years, 33 years, year after year after year, half a million bikes, seven, 800,000 bikes, every single year. Okay? It was like rolling thunder on Memorial Day, making that thunderous sound of over what we hope and I believe is going to be over 100,000 American motorcycles. They won't be able to ignore us. And can we make this something that they can't ignore? Of course we can. 100,000 or more? Harley Davidson, other American, all kinds of motorcycles? Harley Davidson always dominated 95% of the bikes. It was all right there. How do you ignore that, okay? It's up to us. It's up to us, America. We had over a million bikes in 2018, and now can we do it again? Can we make it so uncomfortable for the D.C. establishment that the media won't be able to ignore 
or underplay it. It's up to us. If we can have an overflow crowd at RFK Stadium, you know, this ride has been taken over by the AMVETs. The AMVETs have been great. And I'm not trying to do something to see that they're going to get in trouble. I hope to have the executive director on Roll Right Radio sometime soon. I would hope maybe a couple of times before Rolling to Remember, before Memorial Day comes up. I just want him to know when I say I want there to be an overflow, not because I, I want to make things uncomfortable for the ambits. I, I salute them. I appreciate the hell out of what they're doing. And, you know, and I, I'm so thankful for it. But I think it's going to be healthy because we couldn't get the Pentagon Park. And they got RFK. And I just hope they make it so big that the bikes roll all over Constitution Avenue. You know, can we overwhelm the whole city of Washington, D.C.? They love us. There's not that much there on Memorial Day. It was always kind of a solemn day until we blew it up. We blew it up in the noise of motorcycles with the sound of outraged engines making noise and demonstrating for all our POWs, MIAs, to show the respect and dignity earned by those Gold Star families. Can we overwhelm the candlelight vigil on Friday night? If you haven't been there, the Friday night before Memorial Day is just the most moving and wonderful candlelight vigil. And we can do this. We can overwhelm everything and make this kind of noise and create the spectacle of a demonstration. And we have many times in the past. We made rolling to remember Memorial Day in Washington. We made it so big. It was the biggest one-day motorcycle event ever. It was shut down by COVID, but it came back last year with over 50,000 bikes, and we won over 100,000 this year. I think we get a lot more than that. Don't get me wrong. Every year, year after year, we had a half a million bikes or more for the last 15, 20 years. For the first eight or 10 years, it just grew and grew until it got so big, which is great. Can we get a half a million? I'm sure we can. But I feel strongly because last year, the first year after COVID, we didn't know what to expect. And the AMVETS, boy, whatever they did, they got 50,000 bikes there. I just feel like Getting 100,000, it would be excellent. And I think it's more than doable. And I'm not going to be surprised if we get a whole bunch more than that. Yeah, you want to express your anger, your outrage over how we left Afghanistan? You want to refocus on those who are still there so we can bring them home? You want to embrace the Gold Star families? including the families of the 13 killed at Kandahar, and show up. Help us demonstrate our love for our fellow warriors, how much we care. Let demonstrate. Let the world see how much we care, how much we believe. Be there. Make your plans now. Rolling to remember Memorial Day weekend, Washington, D.C., 2022. I'm telling you. It's always meant a lot. It has. And believe me, as a Vietnam vet, and I talk about it a lot, I cannot talk about it too much. I can't. I could talk about it till the cows come home. If you don't 
Remember, if it's not clear, we're doomed to repeat it. Treating returning military the way we were treated, that alone can bring a country to its knees. I think we're still paying the price on a national level for what this country did to us. It's because what you do to us is what you do to you. We're just a reflection of America. You know, right now, there's less than one half of 1%, one half, 0.049% of the country serving. But that percentage, those who are serving, it's a microcosm of the whole country. You know, when they talk about diversity, I don't think anything's more diverse than our military. It's just a natural reflection of who America is, who joins, the farmers and the factory workers, the children of people from all over, every aspect of life, black, white, Puerto Rican, everything is represented in our military. So the military is a reflection of the country and the way you treated the Vietnam vets returning from war. That's the self-image that America had. That was the image this country had of itself. A bunch of hippies burning, not just draft cards, but burning American flags. I remember. I saw it. And you got to remember, when I talk about rolling to remember, when I talk about going to Washington on Memorial Day, we're talking about not just because it's a good ride to Washington. It's probably not. But, you know, I don't think about the ride when I'm going. I think about the guys I served with. I think about how we were also disrespected, but particularly those who gave their lives. And I think about what it felt like to be treated like that. I I don't want to make a civil rights appeal out of this because we were a reflection of America. And I'm telling you, America didn't give a damn about the color of your skin any more than people in the neighborhood where I grew up. If you were in a certain neighborhood, it would think it was territorial, just territorial. If you're from this part of town, don't wander into that part of town. If you happen to be black and you're going into the white part of town, it's because you don't come from that part of town. It's just the way it was and the way it is. When I was in Vietnam with the guys I served with, yeah, we got beat up because we were white guys in a black bar. That's right. Actually, they got beat up more than we did because we were outnumbered like eight or ten to one. It was a dozen of them and three of us, me, Robin Shea, and Leroy Siffering. And when they came on us and started pouncing on us, within two minutes, the 101st Airborne MPs broke through the, because the Mamasan had called them, had gone out in the street when she saw this brewing and had called them. So they, they got there just as punches were beginning to be thrown. There was some headlocks and pushing and different, and then boom, the punches started going. Next thing we know, here comes the MPs and... My man, Mike Hancho Carico, Hancho, comes in, punches 
the biggest guy in the mouth. And the whole thing ended in about three seconds. Not the point. The point is that it goes every which way but loose, okay? It's just there's a certain normality of people being territorial in one way or another. And I, I never took it as these guys hate us because we're white. And so it is what it is. But when we came back, we were all treated in a disgusting way. Whether we were black or white or Christians or Jews or Muslims or Puerto Ricans or whatever category, gays, we were all treated like garbage if we wore the uniform. We were all treated exactly the same. <laughs> white, white or black, didn't matter. We were all treated like we were disgusting human beings because we wore the uniform of the United States military. And those of us who were in Vietnam, I got to suspect that we would have been treated worse if they knew how to differentiate. I think the, you know, those hippies out there just figured, oh, if you wore the uniform, you probably went to Vietnam and you know killed a bunch of people, innocent people. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know how they were thinking. These are the people that got out of school, went to college, became the administrators of our schools, ran the schools, ran businesses, and we wonder why the country's in trouble. They were so stupid. They were so stupid. They didn't understand the importance of helping these people of South Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, helping them step up to the fascists, the dictators. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. And that gives you a government of today that looks at you and says, you must wear a mask. A mask. A stupid cloth mask. It doesn't work. So what? The government tells you to wear it. You can't go into a store without wearing it. And that store can't serve you. And if that person, that family loses their business, I mean, that's what it is. That's what we've come to. So those are the people. That's right. Those are the people who essentially run the country. The draft dodges, the, yeah, don't tell me. I'm not talking about the Bill Clintons or the other people that didn't, didn't go into the military. I'm talking about mass demonstrators who burnt draft cards, burnt the American flag, the hippies and the beatniks and the rest of them that, you know, hell no, we won't go. The ones that went to Canada, the ones who became school teachers so they wouldn't have to go in the military. Think about it. Maybe I harbor a little more, a little more anger. Maybe I'm a little over the top about that. It could be, but I'm entitled to. I paid the price. So anyway, I, I want you all to think hard and seriously about either coming to Rolling to Remember in Washington, supporting people, somebody, maybe just pick a person. Find a vet. You want to do something cool for that vet? Support him or her in riding their motorcycle to Washington. You know what? If they drive, just get to Washington, D.C. and be there. There's going to be a lot more information coming out. Stay tuned. Listen to Roll Right Radio. You'll see it everywhere. You'll see it on Instagram. 
the AMVETs do a great job of getting the word out. I think they're going to be doing a better job this year after the success that they had last year. And it's going to be quite something. I think this year, again, it's so important to let the world know how outraged we are about how we left Afghanistan, how many people we left behind. Yeah, we also left behind $88 billion of weapons and ammunition and all that. We're talking about lives. We're talking about humanity. We're talking about Americans who were left behind and Afghans who helped us who were left behind. So rolling to remember, let's remember every one of them. Let's remember every reason to support these people and make sure that this government pivots and does something much more positive than they're doing to get these people back. Let's make our voices heard. Let's make our motorcycles heard. Let's let the world hear us. And let's make sure that the families of those who are left behind, including those 13, let's make sure they understand that they feel how deeply we feel, the love and the appreciation we feel for their sacrifice. I'm New York Mike. This is Roll Right Radio. Yeah, baby. 2022 Roll Right Radio. For today, I'm out. Thanks for listening to the Roll Right Radio podcast. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.